Blair, and welcome back to another episode of my show. I'm Father Roderick, podcasting on a very warm summer day. The windows are closed because the students are outside in the backyard. Well, the neighbor's backyard. <laughs> and they're making a lot of noise, and I'm kind of expecting it to get worse over time this evening. It's been a while since I brought you a new show, and that has to do with two things. Uh, first of all, my working schedule. I've been uh, working really, really hard on on three TV episodes with a very strict deadline that left me with no time and no energy to record uh, the show. I apologize for that, but um, that's also part of my reality. Sometimes I get these bottlenecks when it comes to production, and then I have to choose. <laughs> and the second uh, thing that has prevented me from from podcasting on a regular basis lately is my health. Um, I've been uh, still a little bit under the weather, and it got worse when I got my vaccination. Now, of course, that this is temporary. It's part of the side effects of getting vaccinated. I received a, a vaccination this past Saturday, and it completely knocked me out. I did not expect that, because after all, I had a pretty severe case of COVID-19, so I thought the you know, what, what, what worse can a vaccine be? But it definitely triggered the same symptoms. I was uh, feverish. Uh, actually, I had a fever. I was extremely tired. So I've been laying in bed for two full days. And, uh, and I'm only now recovering. Actually, even today, I went to bed for a couple of hours. So uh, I'm recording this in the evening. I have a little bit more energy, although I, I still feel that I, I shouldn't push it. So I'm, I'm maybe my energy levels will not be what they are, what, 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 what you're used to when I'm recording this. This morning, I recorded an episode of The Walk. Um, usually in the morning, I do still have some energy and then I collapse after lunch. And then gradually by evening time, I still have a little bit of leftover energy, which today I'm going to pour into the show. Speaking of which, let's get going. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Things are definitely getting better, and that has to do with all the vaccinations that are going on in the world, and also in my country. Millions of people have already received their first vaccine. Uh, some people like me have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is not the, the best ones, like AstraZeneca. Uh, they are s slightly less effective compared to the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. Um, but all in all, you know, what matters most is that that as many people as possible get vaccinated so that we can start to return to normal life and uh, we are gradually opening up society hopefully they will still do it carefully because well the news from the uk shows us that you can't be too optimistic right away it's not as if you know everything is back to normal because you still have these new variants of the of the virus uh, or of the yeah of the virus like uh, in this case uh, the, the Delta variant that is even more contagious compared to the, uh, the previous one, the, the UK variant, as we used to call them. Now they have Greek letters. Um, and uh, we don't know, of course, since there are so many other parts of the world where vaccination is still very, very rare. Uh, we still don't know what, what more mutations we will witness in the near future. But what matters is that we do what we can right now and hope that our uh, our society acts responsibly and doesn't really go, <laughs> doesn't immediately go overboard. Uh, prudence is always a good a good advice. Uh, it, it it definitely means that the possibilities are growing, uh, especially when it comes to moving around, uh, connecting with friends. I am particularly happy that today. Uh, in the European Union, a number of countries have moved from orange to yellow uh, in terms of uh, warning, yeah, warning state or something like that. Among these countries is Italy, which will be very good news for my friends in Rome, <laughs> for Mountain, for instance, whose whole livelihood depends on, on, on tourism and on uh, people being able to travel to Rome for pilgrimages. So I... Uh, and for, for me, it will also hopefully result in another trip to Rome one of these months. I'm not in a hurry. 
maybe to produce some episodes. I haven't decided yet. So right now I've planned about 12 TV episodes. So I still need to find three three topics. And normally I would just go to Rome and film some episodes there. Uh, but maybe I won't do that now. Maybe I'll just go to Rome and, and do something for myself or film something for you, for my international audience, which is definitely uh, becoming a reality. I've been working with uh, Hugo, uh, the director and cameraman that I often employ for my, for my, to help me with my work. Um, and what we're going to try to do is to finish the entire TV production before the 1st of September. So that coming September, I will be free of any obligations and any deadlines uh, with regards to my television work, which then will give me the opportunity to work on international projects. And, well, you know how much I'm looking forward to, to doing that. Um, also, uh, very happy that... Uh, uh, w while working on my Camino series, um, I, I did it in such a way that I can easily add some extra segments in it. I have some, uh, I found some, actually some English interviews that I did and, and conversations that I had, which I couldn't integrate in the Dutch version. So I can use those for a recut of the footage, uh, for an international audience. So hopefully that is also something that I can start working on. And then, of course, something you may have heard me talking about in the walk is this puppet project um, that is in the works for the later part of this year where we want to record some children's videos, educational videos, uh, using kind of Muppet-style puppets. And uh, I'm happy to work with uh, someone who has a lot of experience when it comes to writing for children and for educational work. And... Um, and I'm also looking forward to having some time to do that. I hope that you are well uh, where you are, that uh, hopefully you also got vaccinated, or maybe for the first time, maybe you're still waiting for your second vaccination. Um, I've noticed that a very, very small percentage of my followers has very strong feelings about vaccination, and they're very negative feelings. To them, I would say, first of all, from just, having had COVID-19 is please do yourself a favor, get vaccinated. Even if you think you may not get very strong uh, symptoms or you're healthy, you don't know what the virus will do to you. I was very healthy. I'm a marathon runner. <laughs> I live a very normal run-of-the-mill life and yet I was knocked out completely for three weeks and then I've suffered from long COVID for months. You don't want to incur that risk. Um, secondly, no matter what your, uh, your, th your the information is what, th that you've read, always consider the possibility that you may be in, uh, in an information bubble and that the algorithms on the internet are feeding you what you are actually looking for and will reinforce this. Uh, it's kind of like a, the algorithm version of uh, confirmation bias. The algorithms actually work to to strengthen that. And so, um, I've I think I've seen in some of the arguments that people use when they say they don't want vaccination that their sources of information um, are well definitely not balanced. So I would always invite you to look to listen to the scientists, listen, read the proper scientific uh, articles about this. Um, ask your doctor, ask your physician, um, and don't just follow what the people that you see are that are showing up in your timeline are are uh, are trying to make you think. Um, always try to have multiple sources of information, and beware of those algorithms because they can be quite destructive. And if you never get any other opinions, and worse, if some of these people that you follow are telling you not to listen to scientists, then you have to be extra careful. And I'm saying this because I want you to be safe. I also want you to be, uh, uh, to not be a risk for the people around you. Imagine if I uh, had infected my parents my father, he would have probably died. 
I mean, I could never live with that. And, and, and that could very well be the case if you yourself don't have symptoms, but if you're not careful enough, you can still be a carrier of the virus and kill someone else without even knowing that you did. So that's, I think, just part of our responsibility. And one final thought, and this is to people that tell me, well, but I believe in God. <laughs> uh, he will save me. I always think about this story that I've told before. It's about this guy who is uh, on the rooftop of a building that is submerged by waters. There's a, been a tsunami. And uh, at one point, uh, a fireman arrives in a boat and says, hey, climb in the boat. I'm going to bring you to, uh, to safety. And then the guy on the roof says, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer. I, I pray God will save me. And then uh, another bigger boat arrives a few hours later and the guy is like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not going to join you. I, I'm a believer. I don't have to fear. God will save me. And then finally a helicopter arrives above him and lowers a ladder and invite people on board, invite him to, to climb up. And then he says, no, 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 no. It's, I'm okay. I'm okay. I don't need the helicopter. I, um, I believe in God. God will save me. And then, well, he, he drowns <laughs> and he arrives in heaven and, uh, and then he's mad at God, and then he he re- require he requests a meeting with uh, with Jesus, and says, "But Jesus, I I've prayed so much, and, uh, and yet you didn't save me. What?" And then Jesus said, "What? What do you mean I didn't save you? I sent a small boat, then I sent a bigger boat, and then sent a helicopter." <laughs> That's kind of the line of thought, you know. Your faith in God and your trust in him does not negate the need for doctors. Actually, the fact that we have doctors, that we have scientists, that that we have vaccines, those are signs that God takes care of us, that he helps us find solutions for this pandemic. Most of you wouldn't hesitate to take an aspirin or take Tylenol or whatever if you have a strong headache. And yet with this vaccine, all of a sudden we, we become irrational. And, and we start to find, we, I, sometimes it feels like people are, are maybe using their faith in God so to kind of uh, uh, pacify their fears. And I, to them, I would just say, well, have trust in, in science. Have trust in doctors. I know that there is a lot of mistrust in, in society, especially in American society with all the polarization. And I see s- similar situations here in the Netherlands, albeit much on a much smaller scale. But the large majority of people, fortunately, just get vaccinated. And there are millions and millions of people around the world that have received a vaccine and are now almost immune to the virus. And it will not kill them anymore. And they won't spread it anymore. That is, I think, uh, something you need to take into account. Um, and hopefully it will help you to have trust also in in the scientists that God sent us to help us. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. I want to recommend a new series that I've discovered to you that if you have Netflix, you should absolutely watch because it's one of the most beautifully filmed and narrated stories that I've seen in a long, long time. And it is very pertinent to the situation that we've all been in for more than a year now with the pandemic. The story, the series, is called... Sweet Tooth. And no, it has nothing to do with sugar. It's not a story about Willy Wonka or a chocolate factory. This is a story about a world that has been hit hard, very hard, with a pandemic. Wow, what a coincidence. And the pandemic, we learn in the very first moments of the first episode, is probably likely the result of the way in which we've been living our lives and and treating the world in which we live. And the funny thing is that, and this is a bit of a fairy tale, um, nature is trying to solve 
the situation by killing off most people that are threatening its existence. So it's very much a, a, a kind of a, a fairy tale in which the world itself or nature itself becomes almost a, 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 a conscient entity or something like that. Anyway, that is beside the point. That is just a little bit of context to create the, the, the parameters for the actual narrative, which is about something very, very strange that happens. And that is that from one day to another, all of a sudden, all the babies that are born have animal traits. And they seem to be more mutated children that sometimes may have uh, elements of uh, a deer, uh, like the main character of the story, the boy, it's actually called Sweet Tooth, or it's named, it's a nickname, it's got nicknamed Sweet Tooth. Uh, other children will uh, look like foxes or even a little piggy. And, um, and then what happens is that these children are getting the blame for the sickness uh, that is killing so many people. And little by little, you start to discover how people react in times of stress to this perceived threat. And you see at work a mechanism that we recognize in our own world as well. That is why this is a fairy tale. Fairy tale is also a mirror story. They start to try to find uh, a group of people that they can blame. And in this case, it's the most vulnerable beings, the children the children that are no longer considered to be normal. You can see how much this is very kind of topical with uh, all the themes that are currently dominating uh, our our media culture right now. And then the story uh, branches out in, in, in different directions. We follow a doctor who has uh, a wife who is struck by the illness but receives uh, like a medicine experimental medicine, uh, which keeps her alive and prevents the sickness from spreading. However, we soon start to, to, to gather that there is more to this medicine and there is actually a price that is paid for this and it's pretty horrible. So that's, that's one story. Then you have the main story in the first few episodes and also the story of the main principal character, Sweet Tooth, story of a, a father who is trying to save his son, his young son, by bringing it into the woods and raising his son all by himself, trying to protect him and trying to teach him how to never cross the boundaries of the, of the forest in which they're hiding because the world outside is too dangerous. Now, you, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you may remember another series that I enjoyed quite a bit, on Netflix, which was very similar, uh, much more, you know, more gritty, uh, darker than this story. But still the same idea that a father brings his daughter into the woods and the daughter is actually also has some special powers and, and whatnot. So same parameters, very, very different version of the story. Um, and then over time, we, we start to discover through the eyes of this young boy the world outside is actually much more complex and much more dangerous, but also more beautiful than he ever imagined. And you've, you have this ongoing contrast between the, the innocence of the children and their capacity to find joy in the middle of darkness, and then these brooding, uh, conflicted, often morally compromised uh, uh, adults that have also paid a price to be alive and to stay alive. And yet, there is still redemption to be found in that broken world. And the story, the first season of Sweet Tooth, is about that. It's about finding, finding sweetness in a world that is so bitter. Uh, what I love about the story is, it is it's really a fairy tale. Um, and so there's always, there's this narrator... Um, who introduces each episode, but does it in a very soothing, calming way. And uh, what I like about uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the way in which they use this narration 
is that it puts you at ease, that no matter what you will see, and this episodes get very dark at times and scary, albeit, you know, this is not Stranger Things, but still. Uh, but the, the way in which it's framed in this narration always makes you think, you know what, this is still going to work out. And, that, and so it instills hope in the storytelling right from the start. And isn't that what we're craving right now? And there are moments in every episode that are so touching and so moving. And it takes its time to tell the story. And there are moments of beauty and joy that are very, very, very strong and impactful because the contrast with the rest of the situation is so big. And I applaud it that the series takes its time for those moments. The entire story is, is based on a, a graphic novel, on a comic book series, which is visually very, very different from the live-action version. And I, I would dare to say I've seen some of the panels of the original comic series, uh, what they did filmically in terms of cinematography and characters. I would say the Netflix series is even better if not far superior <laughs> to the comic book. Comic book has a, a bit of a, a gritty style. It's a, a bit minimalist in its style. It's just, um, I mean, it works for a comic, but I'm glad they went for a more friendly look in the TV series. Another thing that is really wonderful is the cinematography, the way in which it's filmed and edited. Um, even the way in which the movie is graded, you often have this golden hour look to everything, especially in the first few episodes. And it's the quality of the light and the colors that gives you this hope. And it, it, it literally adds like a golden shine to everything, even though the world in itself is not good at all. And there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot going on. But it is almost as if the story tells us as viewers... Don't worry, you know, this is, this is going to end. We're going to get out of this. There is hope. Don't forget this golden edge to everything. And it's the people that make the world beautiful. And, and, and it's the love between people that can make any situation, how terrible it is, can actually heal it. That is what the story is about, at least for, for as far as I've seen it now. And I'm, I'm very impressed. It is a... If this were a book, it was a page. It would be a page turner. I don't know how you say that. It's definitely binge worthy. Worthy, and it's it's um it's the number one series in the Netherlands right now, which is also a good sign that we are we're in for some hope, <laughs> some color in our lives. Um, there are many other things that I could say about this series, but I'd rather first finish the entire season, uh, and and then I can summarize my thoughts. Acting is wonderful too. The kid who plays Sweet Tooth does a tremendous job. Um, highly, highly recommended. Sweet Tooth on Netflix. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics and their strange traditions, but you are afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Today I want to talk about something that may sound a little bit technical. <laughs> the Code of Canon Law. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. Now we're all very familiar with laws. Uh, the rules that are necessary in any society, and even in smaller sub-societies like communities or whatever, um, that, that regulate our lives and also protect the things that we value. The rules and the laws of traffic are necessary to, to protect everyone who is a player in, in traffic. Um, and we can all understand that consensus is not enough. <laughs> you, you need to codify that. And there needs to be a punishment for people that go over these boundaries that we've uh, uh, formulated together and that have proven to be effective. Now, as traffic is changing, our laws and our rules and regulations are also changing. Uh, 
um, think about the old new uh, advent of, of the self-driving cars and sometimes the accidents in which they are involved. It requires the rules and regulations, probably on a global level, to be revised and to be adapted to this new change in, in traffic behavior and new possibilities. Now, that is also the case in our societies. Our laws are never static. They are often based on very uh, uh, fundamental principles, uh, like the human rights. It's something that uh, we hope everyone in the world can subscribe to. And you need to have these almost um, ob objective values that are shared by all mankind in order to have justice in the world. And that's one of the big issues sometimes in international uh, relationships, that one country may have radically opposed values to your own value system. To give you an example, if you look at uh, copyright law in China, it's so different from the way in which we try to protect uh, um, intellectual property in the rest of the world. And so for in China, you can just copy something and sell it for a lower price and probably also produce it under less safe conditions and with, uh, I don't know, it's not as controlled as here. And then and just make money on someone else's idea that that is there is a different set of values and from our perspective that is wrong you don't do that that's stealing maybe in china the people that do that think we're just being clever you know we're just copying a good idea it's better than to come up with a bad idea ourselves so it goes to show that you need certain that justice requires certain objective values on which you try to to build the rest of, of the legal foundation. Now, that, of course, will never be shared by everyone. And, I mean, culturally, uh, on the level of faith, um, also circumstances require also sometimes very localized regulations. Um, just think about the situation uh, when it comes to COVID. In some countries, their vaccination is, is, is having such a massive effect that you can loosen up the regulations, whereas in other countries, it's still way too dangerous to unmask and to, uh, to open up the country, as they say. So that's very understandable that laws change and have to evolve with the situation. Now, what many people don't know is that the church also has laws, and they're not just limited to churchy things like you know, how to behave during a mass or something like that. There's actually a code of canon law. Canon is uh, canonical, uh, which canones, I think, means rules. Now I forget. I should have researched. Well, anyway, just ask a canon lawyer. <laughs> anyway, so we call it the code of canon law, and it is meant to regulate all the aspects of life as a member of the church. And um, uh, what is important to understand is that the code of canon law does not want or pretend to supersede uh, local rules and regulations. So you can't say, well, but I'm a Catholic, so I only have to obey to the rules and regulations of the church. And so, you know, I can just run a red light and, uh, hey, I'm a Catholic, so I can do that. It's, there's nothing about traffic in the code of canon law. No, it is meant to regulate the things that are specific to the life of a Christian. And it covers not just, as I said, churchy things, but also the choices, the, the moral choices that we make, the way in which we behave, uh, what defines um, behavior that needs to be punished, uh, needs to be corrected. And so the Code of Canon Law has a number of chapters, a number of sections um, that are meant to literally to keep people in line. And when I say in line, it's not just obedience, in line with what Jesus wants us to do. So when you want to look at a, a foundation for Canon Law, you will find that in the Ten Commandments. You will find that in what Jesus says. Uh, the, the roots and the foundation of canon law is the Bible itself. However, the Bible, having been written uh, 
more and often oftentimes more than 20 centuries ago uh, the bible contains lots of rules and regulations for a different cultural situation a different uh, historic times and uh, a, a lot of the things that we have to deal with nowadays just didn't exist so you know you didn't have to worry about it and so what what canon law does is to take these biblical principles and to extrapolate that into more specific rules and regulations for the times and the culture that we currently live in, some of which are kind of universal and have been uh, valid for as long as the church exists, and some are more specific and have changed over time. Now, there have been a number of revisions uh, throughout the history, and this current pope, Pope Francis, has been making quite a bit of changes to canon law, uh, which has surprised canon lawyers. They never thought, I mean, they knew from the get-go, because he said it himself, that he was going to change a lot of things. That was actually one of the, one of the reasons that they hired him. <laughs> they, he needed to, to make some, some, some reforms. Everybody was in agreement, or at least the cardinals agreed on that. That is why they picked someone who could probably do that. And it's one of the reasons, at least according to Pope Benedict himself, that he stepped down. He, someone healthier and stronger needed to take over what he started and a lot of the changes that pope francis is effectuating are grounded in what pope benedict started so you see a very strong continuity in these legal reforms from pope benedict to pope francis now uh one of the most drastic reforms has been the 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 ref- the rewrite of the fourth chapter which is all about the the kind of the more punitive aspects of the of the law you know what what behavior should be punished and one of the fundamental aspects that they try to put forward is that uh canon law when when canon law punishes it is always with um the the desire to correct to change the person who is punished. And so that's one thing. So there is always a pastoral principle. Um, The church never wants to punish just for the sake of punishment, to get payback or worse, revenge. Punishment in the Catholic Church always means to shake someone, to wake someone up, to push someone to conversion, to incite this desire to return into full communion with the church, even excommunication never a definitive thing in the church but it is a, one of the worst punishments one of the most gravest punishments you basically are pushing someone out of the community and thereby out of the out of access out of reach of the sacraments in the hope that that person will think about it and reflect and get advice and counsel and will find his or her way back to the church and and come back into that community, but the church itself cannot mend what someone else has broken. That's that's also because of liberty, of freedom, freedom of choice. So that pastoral principle is one thing, but also the the, the protection of the dignity of people is at stake when it comes to uh, punishment. S- in what was wrong with the previous version of the code of canon law is that it it kept things a little bit too open to interpretation um you could basically choose whether or not to punish certain uh certain sins or certain morally uh reprehensible uh actions and it would also sometimes be too simplistic when it comes to to the actual codification of certain laws. For instance, one of the main uh, reasons for this reform was, of course, the failure of the Catholic Church to deal with abuse. This has been going on for decades, and we've seen how much ravages this has caused in the lives of countless people. And we are still, I still have the feeling that we've only seen the tip of the iceberg, and there is so much more that is still unknown to us and sometimes maybe we will never know what damage has been done by members of the church on when it comes to abuse um 
And that is the, the reason that I say that is that just the other day I read an article in the Dutch newspaper that um, uh, a new research in the Netherlands has, uh, has shown that 50% of the girls before they are 18 years old have had to deal with sexual aggression. 50%, not 15%, 50%. And in more than half of the cases, the victims of this abuse did not go to the police out of fear, out of shame, because they weren't believed. So that is just another sign that this is not just a blind spot for the church. It's a blind spot for all our society. And despite all the Me Too movements and you know the the, more, the, the the fact that we're getting more and more sensitive to this matter, I still think that we have a long way to go when it comes to the recognition of the suffering of of women and men who have been the victims of of sexual aggression, sexual violence. So, in the church, this has been a very rude awakening as well. Sorry, I got to blow my nose here for a second. I'm suffering of uh, pollen allergies, which is new. <laughs> I've never had that before. But all the grass is currently uh, spreading pollen. And for some reason, maybe I'm mutating. <laughs> I'm now all of a sudden susceptible to it. So I get a runny nose while podcasting. Um, so the one of the one of the ways in which they would qual- qualify transgressions when it came to uh, sexual abuse in the Code of Canon Law was to to uh, put it in the category of sins against the sixth commandment. So it was basically, you know, either for a priest to break his promise of celibacy, uh, purity, that sort of stuff. What this new chapter does, or this rewrite does, is to emphasize that this goes way beyond just purity or celibacy or those inner church rules. This goes against a very fundamental value that is even independent of your religious belief, and that is the dignity of the human being. It is the same argument, the same foundation on which the church builds its pro-life advocacy, that even a child that is not born yet, and even if it's born, if even if it's conceived in, in a very damaging, hurtful, horrible situations, the child itself is innocent. And if you don't protect a child, if you kill it, then there are two victims. It's a very delicate topic, of course, but the church there also always uses kind of secular arguments. It's based on, you know, what constitutes a human being and shouldn't we all be have equal rights? Uh, a child, a small child, should have equal rights as, you know, a, a millionaire <laughs> who is rich and healthy. Um, someone who is blind should have the same rights and the same has the same dignity as someone who can see. And it's, it's interesting that in our societies, sometimes we're very picky as to who we grant these universal rights and that dignity and who we rob it from. But for our case... Uh, when it comes to uh, these these forms and these instances of sexual aggression and abuse, this is now defined as an attack on human dignity. And I think that is a very, very strong... And so the punishments are getting more specific and and stronger because this is not about, you know, a priest or, or nun or religious person breaking his or her vows... This is about destroying someone's dignity. And if you, if you hurt someone's dignity, it can have ramifications for the rest of that person's life. We know this from all the stories from the victims of abuse. How much one act of sexual aggression can destroy the rest of their lives, can, can have them have to follow therapy for the rest of their lives, have, cause anxiety, struggle, all that. So... I'm very happy that the church takes this much more seriously now. And and also, something that was said during the presentation of this recodification of canon law was, we should, um, we should never uh, 
choose between a pastoral attitude and uh, an, and and the desire to do justice. Um, this is something that I've emphasized in many different contexts many times before on this show, is that in Catholic theology, truth and and love should always go together. You can never trade in one for another. Truth cannot be without love. Love cannot be without truth. And one of the things that that the the the, the, pre, the this pope and the previous pope have signaled is that oftentimes the way in which canon law is formulated, it would leave it up to the individual bishop to or the individual judge to say, well, you know what, we should just you know forgive this person, give that person a new chance, um, and not look at the damage that was done to the dignity of the victim and not protect the victim. This is maybe the biggest scandal of, of, of or the biggest aspect of the scandal um, that I've rocked the church is the fact that, that often perpetrators were moved to another location, were easily forgiven, you know, you get a new chance, and then they would repeat their behavior. And that, in now, doing that and not acknowledging what has happened, not punishing the people that have perpetrated these acts, actually becomes an offense itself, becomes punishable by canon law itself. So it's much more consistent, and it's much more balanced, and it does ultimately more justice to who God is, because God is love, but God is also just. And when there is injustice in life, we often think, well, God will ultimately meet that person. And that person will have to look God in the face with what he or she has done. And that will still bring justice to that person's life. There has to be justice. Otherwise, who would want to live in a, in, in, in a heaven where God has said, well, you know what, yeah, let's forget about that. I mean, this is different from forgiveness, right? Forgiveness... Seeking forgiveness and doing penance is a form of conversion, is a form of repair. You try to fix what the damage that you've done. But there is also an aspect of justice to that. You can never get an absolution if you tell the priest, hey, yeah, well, kill that guy, and, well, maybe tomorrow I will do that, but right now I regret it, but, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do next week. <laughs> In that case, the priest will say, uh, um, yeah, get back to me later when you have the firm resolution to not sin again, <laughs> otherwise I cannot forgive you. Because justice, you have to change your behavior for good. You have to have the strong intent to, to not repeat that behavior. Otherwise, what good is your confession? And so, ultimately, heaven is filled with the just. And the just are the people that God has been uh, just towards. <laughs> and, and So who is walking front and center uh, in these, in these uh, stories in, that we read in the book of Revelations? It's the sinners that have been forgiven. It's the martyrs, the victims of violence. They are the ones that get first place. And who is be, who is lagging behind? Why do we have a concept of purgatory? It is the people that still need a lot of healing before they can enter. And, and maybe a form of repair needs to be repaired. <laughs> and, and how exactly that, that comes about, ultimately, that's up to God. We, we can only do what we can do in this world. And so canon law also knows that it is limited and uh, people can always try to escape from it or hide their sins. and um, So it's not uh, foolproof. The, the, the Catholic Church does not have uh, an FBI or CIA that goes and taps phones from, from, from possible perpetrators. So it is still a very, you know, kind of uh, meek institution in a certain way. But when it has to bring justice to people, then this new revised code of canon law wants to give the judges the tools to be more just and to protect to be more to put more of the emphasis on the protection of the dignity of the victims instead of just giving yet another chance to someone who has proven to be unworthy of that of that faith and of that forgiveness all right 
<laughs> Let's move over to the world of books and cats. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? In the meantime, I want to uh, give a quick shout out to Pascal Idema on YouTube, who has given me a, a small donation. You can do these small micro donations on, on YouTube while you're watching the stream. I hope for you that the stream actually won't falter like it did like for weeks now. Every time I try to stream, the, the stream stops. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for your support. I'm glad you enjoy the show. Um, so I've been listening to a number of audiobooks, and as usual, I'm listening to a ton of audiobooks at the same time. Just to give you an overview of the books that I'm currently listening to and haven't finished yet, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I haven't finished it yet. It is wonderful, but uh, I still have some chapters to go through. Then I started the, this classic science fiction novel by the Chinese writer Xi Jin Liu, The Three-Body Problem. And unfortunately, I had to stop quite quickly because it required so much concentration that I just I, I didn't have the energy to listen to it. I also started reading, as I mentioned last time, The Grisha. Um, uh, what is it? Shadow and um, Shadow and Darkness or something? Shadow Shadow and Bone. Um, and I started reading it because there's, it's also a Netflix series. By the way, yeah, I think it's Netflix. Has been renewed for a second season. I'm also reading Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and this is because I had some conversations with uh, Luigi, the Italian student who lives here in the house, uh, who's also a big Harry Potter fan, and he's currently re-watching the Harry Potter series in Portuguese. <laughs> you may wonder why. He's hoping to get a job in a company where one of the, one of the co-workers speaks uh, Brazilian Portuguese. So, And he's, uh, Luigi is quite, quite good at languages. He speaks really good Dutch. He taught himself Dutch in just two years. It's unbelievable. Uh, he speaks French, uh, a bit of Spanish, Italian, English, and uh, and now he's he's trying to teach himself Portuguese by watching Harry Potter. And so we had some conversation about the differences between the books and the movies, and so I started to listen to the books again. It's so much fun. And wow, did I forget all the extra details that you find in the books. It, it, there is so much more in the books than there is in the movies. I love the movies, but the books are great too. Then I'm, I've started reading again The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison because this one also has been contracted for a TV series. Maybe on Amazon, maybe on Netflix, I don't know. And I've started reading a small book, small novel by Stephen King, In the Tall Grass. And I picked that one because it was just short, so I was telling myself I'll just listen to a few chapters before I go to bed. It is about one hour and a half long, so I can I can finish that quickly. It's not the Dark Tower <laughs> series. And then the book that I actually wanted to mention uh, here or talk about a little bit more in detail is called, uh, in Dutch, because it's a Dutch book, so unfortunately it's not been translated, it's called uh, The Eibarheidsfactor. Eibarheidsfactor. Try, try <laughs> saying that in Dutch. The Eibarheidsfactor. The Eibarheidsfactor. It means actually the cuddliness factor. That may give you a hint what this book is all about. This book is about cats. <laughs> the uh, According to the, the back sleeve of the book, the cuddliness factor is a never-surpassed summit in Dutch cat literature. <laughs> the book actually doesn't seem to take itself very seriously. It's about cats and their behavior, but it's much more about our behavior towards cats. And, well, you know, my, my adventures with uh, the house cat of the rectory, Arturo. I feel like there is a whole new world, a whole new world <laughs> that I have to discover when it comes to cats. I've always been a dog person. And that's because of my parents. They were dog people as well. They had dogs when they were little. And so we had dogs when I was a child. Well, actually not when I was a child. When I was already in high school, we got a dog. And then they always had dogs. So I wasn't too familiar with cats. But, and I blame social media for that, especially Facebook, just having watched so many cat videos <laughs> made me believe that I actually was an expert when it came to cat behavior. I was so wrong. Arturo has, has shown me how superior he is in everything to us, you know, earthly, 
earthly warms <laughs> and and that there is still so much that I need to discover about these actual rulers of the of the universe that are cats. So that's why I started to read The Cuddliness Factor. And what I love is that the first chapter immediately starts with my big dilemma or my big the big question that I've been asking myself. Why am I so concerned about Arthuro? Why am I constantly trying to gain its attention, to gain its trust, to maybe ultimately bring him to a doctor, get him checked off for, for sickness or even microchip? Why do I constantly feed the cat while he sometimes runs away for days and just never... All of a sudden he's back there and he's looking at me, meow, feed me. <laughs> And then when I feed him, there's no gratitude there. When I try to talk to him, he just turns around. He's like, you're not there. <laughs> don't, don't imagine yourself that I, that I'm on, that you are on the same level as I am. So why, why am I so uh, preoccupied with this cat that clearly shows that he's not at all preoccupied with me? Well, this book tackles it and says that is actually because in us, and I think this is true, we have this desire for harmony. This is just ingrained in us. We want to believe in a world where we can be friends with anyone. Where we can, well, actually it's quite biblical. It's this dream of a little baby sleeping or putting its hand in a nest of vipers or sleeping next to a lion or something like, or tiger, I don't know. Um, it is this harmonious universe where we don't have to be afraid for other creatures anymore and we're not there yet <laughs> there are so many creatures and animals that we are afraid of and i'm number one when it comes to phobias or what is it yeah yeah phobias <laughs> when it comes to, to animals just th this morning i had a very uh aggressive wasp in my in my room and it woke me up i it's like sleeping with the windows open because it gets very warm here in the attic and then I, I i first started dreaming about a wasp and then i was like <laughs> this very mad aggressive sound like oh shoot it's a wasp and i'm wide awake <laughs> i'm still very groggy because man i was still very very sick feeling very sick because of the vaccine so i fortunately got the wasp out i'm not as panicked anymore as i used to be so i'm a little bit more in control um but uh, and, and the same happened with spiders as well i used to be completely petrified when it came to spiders and over time started to also appreciate them because they were definitely cleaning up other critters in my room and so you know unless they startle me usually i'm pretty tolerant towards spiders even though they will never become a pet <laughs> no um but it is so it's this, this, maybe this very, very deep conscience that uh, the world as it is now, where we are afraid of each other and where we're afraid sometimes of animals, animals are afraid of us, that is not what God intended. And so maybe my desire to become friends with Arturo is because he's rejecting my attention because he doesn't want to get closer and i try to bridge that gap because why because i feel this is this is not supposed to be we're supposed to be friends i mean he even looks like me he's wearing the same colors <laughs> and in, in many ways arthuro in his behavior is also very much like me he's a very introverted cat <laughs> so yeah why can't we be friends so i've never read a book that tackles this kind of stuff. And, well, it's funny and it's also pretty well researched. It's better than I thought it would be. So I haven't finished it yet, but uh, I, I can't wait to, to learn more about the magical world of cats because I think there's some magic involved as well. A scientifically wonderful world of science. What sort of science? Welcome back, science friends. Hmm. I'll take a sip of water here. Well, it's not water, it's lemonade. Mm. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> it, it gets so warm, and sometimes when you're, when you're talking for an hour like this, I get a dry throat, and uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> it's usually I try to drink something during the jingles. That's why I'm so glad that I still have these audio jingles. Whoa. Oh, my, my image goes out of focus on the on the stream for some reason. Hello. <laughs> I'm all blurry. What What is happening? Oh, this is Logitech. Logitech for you. Okay, let me just open the Logitech thing. How do I do this? This is crazy. Okay, let me just see if I can bring it back. Focus on me. Yeah, there we go. Okay, sorry about that. Um, what was I saying? <laughs> yeah, so during the jingle, I tried to take a sip of water, but I forgot that I had it in a bottle that I had to unscrew. So, Where was I? Science. Normally, I talk about uh, planetary science and exploration of Mars, etc. But today, I want to talk about dinosaurs, more specifically about Australian dinosaurs. I didn't even know that Australia had dinosaurs, although it doesn't surprise me. And what also does not surprise me it is that the dinosaur that they've current that they have recently discovered is the largest dinosaur ever <laughs> that ever roamed the earth. Two stories tall and a basketball court long. Now when I first saw this news, I thought that, that this was a new find, but actually it, the remains of this dinosaur were already found in southwest Queensland in 2007. But they only now have been able to identify it and to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, so a number of paleontolo paleontologists have now scientifically described and named the uh, this type of dinosaur. They nicknamed him Cooper for some reason. <laughs> he lived... Um, 90 million years ago. And uh, the world, of course, back then looked very different from the world that we know today. Uh, for instance, the, what is now Australia was still connected to Antarctica. And that was partially linked to the lower part of what is now Africa. And Africa was linked to um, what is now South America. And so it's interesting to learn that similar big dinosaurs, not, not exactly the same one, but this dinosaurs of similar size have been found also, or remains, that is, have been found in uh, South America, which shows you that probably, you know, these dinosaurs were able to spread and to move around over these different continents that are now separated by, by the sea. This... Um, this uh, uh, the, uh, Cooper, this new dinosaur, is scientifically named the Australotitan. Good lord, the Australotitan. That's that's probably how you should Australotitan Cooperensis. Cooperensis, of course, uh, genitive in Latin from Cooper. <laughs> or Cooperens, so the Cooper-like dinosaur, Cooperensis, and Astra is from Australian, and Titan is from the type of dinosaur that this particular species represents. It's a Titanosaur, which is a plant-eating species that belonged to the family of long-necked sauropods. And you know the, the, the sauropods from the plant-eating dinosaurs uh, the, I think it's the Brachiosaurus um, that we that we saw in um, uh, in um, Jurassic Park. Um, so this one is uh, estimated to have reached a height of five to six and a half meters at the hip. This is the hip, <laughs> and then a length of twenty-five to thirty meters. That's as long as a basketball court and a two-story building. <laughs> so it did physically resemble the Brachiosaurus, uh, but it was even bigger. That's amazing. Uh, now, the, the, the reason that it took them so long to figure out what this was, what dinosaur these bones belonged to, is that the, the actual bones were very brittle, very fragile. And so they really had to come up with ways to put all the pieces together because by excavating the bones, they would fall apart. And they used 3D scanning to make th 3D models. And actually, if you look at the photos that they provided uh, us with, you see that the, the bones are now on display 
in uh, kind of like 3D printed holders. At least I suppose they're 3D printed so that they can put everything together almost in a mold. Um, so I don't think it's possible to create, to recreate the entire skeleton in the same way as we see sometimes in, uh, in, in some museums because the bones are too far gone, but they will be able to create a 3D model of this, uh, of this monster. <laughs> well, it's probably not a monster. It's just a big, big animal, plant eating, so nothing to fear there. And they also think that they will, pr will probably discover way more dinosaurs in the near future in Australia. Of course, Australia is uh, huge and for a large part un uninhabited because it's so big and it gets so bloody hot in the, in the summertime. So you don't just drive your car into the desert and start digging. Uh, that is probably why there is... It's possible that we still will have a lot more discoveries in the, in the future now that they know where to where to look for. Um, it's fascinating to realize that, that that there is nothing left of of these animals. And well, of course, some of the dinosaurs, uh, according to uh, uh, paleontolo paleontologists, have ultimately probably evolved into birds, um, but. Uh, most of the dinosaurs were walking this planet long before the humanoid people were walking the earth. And another thing that always blew my mind when I read about it is that the current human race that we belong to actually wasn't the only human race that was out there. Uh, you had the Neanderthals. And that type of, of human being completely disappeared. It was erased and we still don't know exactly what happened or why. Uh, we do know that there has been, and this has genetically been proven, that there have been there cases of crossbreeding. So there may be some remains of Neanderthal genes in, 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 uh, among the, the, the current uh, people that roam the Earth. But most of that particular type of, of beings was gone. Now, for a theologian, that, of course, is also an interesting discovery. It goes to show that y you should never read <laughs> the Old Testament, and especially not Genesis, as a uh, <laughs> um, an archaeological account of what happened or a biological explanation of, of the current world. Um, uh, in, in, in Catholic theology, we consider Genesis to be a... Uh, literary description of some principles uh, that that have to uh, be in play when it comes to the creation of the world. Most importantly, that this this world is not an accident; it's willed by God, and also that men, uh, mankind, has a special place in creation because we have received a soul. Now, everything that lives, according to Th Thomist theology, has a soul, but there are various. Uh, levels, you could say, um, which actually is quite a modern thought. Uh, we would now s probably say, um, and I'm not a biologist, so correct me if I'm wrong. If you're a bi biologist, I'd love to have a chat with you about this. Um, but you see among animals also various levels of awareness, intelligence, um, whether you have to call that soul, that's another thing. But we believe that at least man, uh, mankind is created in God's image. But would that mean that the Neanderthals also were given a, a, a human soul and immortality uh, or not? Maybe that's completely the wrong approach. It's trying to fit our theology onto scientific research. Whereas, so we, we try to look at the world through a theological angle, whereas usually theology works with reality, Right. It's thinking about God's plan, looking at reality. But it's an interesting question. And the same is true about this whole discussion about extraterrestrials. Of course, we've had this whole discussion about UFOs. And um, in fact, they're definitely real. It doesn't mean that they're alien. Uh, we can't tell that for sure. We cannot also not say that it's not true. But what about alien life and God's will and, and God's salvation? Has Jesus also died for Martians, <laughs> to put it uh, in, in more uh, schematic, in a more schematic way. Um, or is the redemption that was brought about by Jesus specific to this planet? Uh, 
And what about other extraterrestrial life that has freedom? If it has freedom, does it mean, and, and self-awareness, does that mean that it is also capable of sin? If it's capable of sin, then you bet that sin has occurred. <laughs> what, what does God do in such a case? You know, he sent Jesus to this planet and not to some other planet. So now, of course, that is all still the realm of, of theory uh, and speculation because we don't know if these UFOs are actually from outer space. And the skeptic in me would probably say it's the least probable explanation, the least probable. It's the most interesting one, and, and it, it, it tickles our imagination, but it's not very likely just looking at the distance that separates us from the rest of the universe. Not very likely. So I'd rather just look around and <laughs> see if we can find a natural explanation or a human explanation for what is witnessed. All right, where am I time-wise? I think it's time to start wrapping things up. I want to talk a little bit more about technology. Shall I do... No, you know what? I'm going to move this over. I'm sorry for my regular listeners. I'm going to move this to the Father Roderick to the Max show. Um, I'll talk a little bit about my impressions of the recent Apple keynote and also the upcoming Windows 11, rumored Windows 11. And I'll also talk a little bit about what Apple may be preparing or may have also already hinted at during this keynote that was rather uneventful, uh, looked like just minor upgrades to operating systems. Nothing too fancy, but there are some hints at something bigger that may be around the corner. I'll tell you my thoughts in Father Roderick to the Max if you want to listen to that show, you want to get access to that feed. Um, the only thing that's necessary is uh, to become a member of the Patreon community. And the threshold is very, very low. You can already become a patron for $2.50 a month. Um, if you can miss it and you want to help out, I gladly welcome you to the community. All right. Thank you so much for uh, listening. Thank you so much if you've been watching this live on Facebook and YouTube. I'm happy to tell you that, well, <laughs> if you've been watching, you already know this, but uh, the stream did not break. It's a miracle. It has never happened before since I, <laughs> ever since I lived here. Hans, thank you so much for, uh, for your donation on YouTube. I appreciate it. Um, I'll stick around a little bit longer after I'm done with the show. Um, just to chat a little bit more with people in on YouTube. All right. Thanks for listening. Take care. See you soon.